You're listening to Don't Waste Water. You're looking at eliminating waterborne illness. You're looking at putting work and school hours back into the economy, eliminating diseases that maybe people aren't even thinking about, like type 2 diabetes. You know, you're more likely, if you don't have access to running water at home, to consume sugar-sweetened beverages and more Mm -hmm. likely to contract diabetes. There's the the sort of knock-on effects in the economy that impact GDP, for instance. And the U.S. economy right now is bleeding out almost $9 billion a year that we leave this gap open. Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. This isn't just something a few people are struggling with in remote places out of choice. This is a really all-consuming daily reality for so many folks who don't have a choice and who would choose to live another way if they could, and who have been forgotten in the way our country has developed its infrastructure, and who without really continued sustained intention uh, will continue to be forgotten, I think. I'm your host, Antoine Valter, and in today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome George Macro as my guest. I think if it could be closed with traditional approaches, it already would have been. The reason the gap exists is because there's something that's not working. And it's not just one thing. George is the CEO and founder of DigDeep. The beauty of my job is that this is completely solvable. And I think with the right investment and focus, we could solve it in the next couple decades. DigDeep is a human rights nonprofit serving the 2.2 million Americans without the sinks, bathtubs, or toilets that the rest of the developed world takes for granted. I hope that the 2.2 million figure shocked you so much when I first mentioned it on that microphone a couple of weeks ago in my introduction to my conversation with Colin Goddard from Source that you couldn't forget it. Because I couldn't, honestly. If the richest country in the world struggles to bring tap water and sewage services to its entire population, doesn't it mean that we're somewhat doomed everywhere around the world? Actually, sitting down with George is exactly the kind of experience that makes you think, yes, there's a big problem. Probably even bigger than we all think it is. But at the same time, it's absolutely solvable. Or to quote him, humanity has solved much more complex issues than this one. So why do we still repeatedly fail at closing the water gap? Why, despite the brilliant minds and charismatic leaders from Bill Gates to Mina Gulli, through Matt Damon and, of course, George McGraw, that devote themselves to solving that riddle, why do we keep failing? Well, it might all boil down to one single issue, the wrong pockets symptom. Those who've been in sales know the power of the right incentive. That is exactly where we're failing today. We heavily rely on utilities to manage water, and utilities are disincentivized to invest in helping these struggling communities because they would never be the ones reaping the benefits of this right move. But if there's one thing you'll be convinced of once you've listened to George, it's that we are not doomed at all. It takes half full types of persons like him to bring us back on track. And I'm sure you'll exit this conversation freshly energized to go out and reap the 5 to 1 investment opportunity there is in doing what's right and good for everyone. So if I'm right and George's message hits home with you, don't keep it secret. Take that podcast, wherever you're listening from, hit the share button and pass it over to one person over WhatsApp, LinkedIn or TikTok for all that matters. Want to distribute it further? Of course, please do so. But even just one person more that gets the message is one step closer to the goal of closing the water gap. Come on, do it. And I'll meet you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. 
This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, George. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Antoine. I can't stress enough how happy I am to have that discussion with you today because... (laughs) I was discussing with Colin Goddard from Source, mm-hmm. and uh, he referred to the work you're doing at Dig Deep, and had some very fascinating reads about your report. On the one hand, very interesting. On the other hand, quite alarming, which leads me to, to that simple question, what do we have to rethink in water? You're right. It's a, it's, it's a good mix of, uh, of pleasure and pain in my business. At Dig Deep, we're focused on the 2.2 million Americans who don't have any access to water or wastewater services at home. And I think it's not so much about rethinking, it's about thinking maybe for the first time about mm. these Americans. Most of my friends and family and colleagues, they know about places without water access, but they assume those places are in sub-Saharan Africa or Latin America or South East Asia, not maybe a 10-minute drive from their house. These folks live in, in all 50 states, and you know it's not a surprise to anyone that race is the strongest predictor of whether or not you and your family have access to water in 2022. Indigenous folks are 19 times more likely than white families not to have running water, black and Latino families twice as likely. And there's a lot more to be said, but I think putting some real sustained emphasis on what we call this water and wastewater access gap, these families who have sort of fallen through the cracks over the course of time, is really important, especially now as climate change accelerates and we're seeing this number grow. Do you have a rational for these 2.2 million people having no access to water? Because it's a terrible question, sorry, but if you look at the work which water.org is doing, Mm, they show how there's this coping cost of not having access to water. And the coping costs are twice, three times higher than the cost to bring water to everybody. So it is an economic nonsense that people in 2022 still don't have access to water. How can they fall into these cracks? You know, for a long time, we didn't have that number in the US. There have been some incredible people, Guy Pierce and others uh, through UN agencies and universities who have been asking that economic question. You know, what economic sense does it make to invest in in what we call wash water, sanitation Mm -hmm. and hygiene services in other countries? We recently did the same study at Dig Deep in the US we call the study draining. The focus is on the economic impact of, of these services in the US and we find that for every dollar we invest in, in access to toilets and taps for families in the US, you get a $5 economic return. Being able to make that econo- economic argument is, is really powerful in and of itself. But if you really dig into the data, it, it, it's helpful to see how, how holistic this problem really is. You know, you're looking at eliminating waterborne illness. You're looking at putting work and school hours back into the economy, eliminating diseases that maybe people aren't even thinking about, like type 2 diabetes. You know, you're more likely, if you don't have access to running water at home, to consume sugar-sweetened beverages and more Mm -hmm. likely to contract diabetes. There's the the sort of knock-on effects in the economy that impact GDP, for instance. And the U.S. economy right now is bleeding out almost $9 billion a year that we leave this gap open. But to sort of Gary and Matt's point over at water.org, if we were to invest the several tens of billions up front to close that gap for good, we could generate $200, $250 billion in economic value over the next 50 years in the U.S. So it's not, just, an, it's has, not just a nice yeah. thing to do. You know, it makes economic sense. It, it is economic nonsense, to use your phrase, uh, not to solve the problem. What is the root story of Dig Deep? Why do you exist you know, I, I wish I could say that we saw this problem and, and, and formed to solve it, but it, it's a little more complicated than that. My background is in international human rights law, and my focus is on water and sanitation access. 
I, I always wanted to work in water, but like many, I thought if you wanted to work in, on this issue, you had to work abroad. And so when I started Dig Deep, you know, in my, in my bedroom a little over a decade ago, uh, our focus was on uh, South Sudan and in Cameroon, you know, building water access systems, using these strategies that have come from 60 years of doing that work as a sector abroad. And then one day I got a call from a donor, a woman named Karen in California who said, I want to donate $50, but I want you to spend it in the U.S. on the Navajo Nation. And I was like, Karen, nobody needs that money here. Why don't you let me spend it where, you know, it'll save lives. And uh, she called me not a very nice name, I think, <laughs> I think, on the phone. You know, Karen had been doing Habitat for Humanity style projects on the Navajo Reservation, which is the country's largest native reservation in the Southwest. And the homes that she was building with her colleagues, they didn't have bathrooms or kitchens. And, and she turned to her to her Navajo colleagues and they said, well, yeah, we're not going to build those because there's no running water here and it's not coming. And she was so flabbergasted by this, she started calling all of these U.S.-based water organizations. I'm sure she called water.org and Charity Water and, you know, Water for People and Water Aid and all the others. And everyone said, you know, no, there's, there's, there's not a problem in the U.S. or we don't work in the U.S. or, you know, find someone else. And so by the time she got to us, I think at the bottom of the list, she was very frustrated. She is fortunate enough to catch me at a time where I'd do anything for $50. So I uh, rode in a car out with her to meet with some you know, folks on the Navajo Nation, some some political officials and some water folks. And the Navajo Water Project was born, which is our first project in the U.S. And since then, we've expanded into more communities in Appalachia and the Texas border region in communities in Alaska and Hawaii and Alabama, all 50 states that that have this problem. And so we're the first organization really focused on, on closing that gap, on solving that problem in the U.S. And that's really all we're focused on now. To close that gap, I guess there's no magical trick but the work you've been doing to start by putting a number, putting the facts straight, is probably the most eye-opening element because there's 2.2 million people which don't have access to water at all, but there's also the tens of millions which have access to water, which had health violations of the Clean Water Act over the past years. Yeah. And there as well, you're, you're shining a light on, on that topic, which can be eye-opening for many. It's interesting you say that. Okay, so, I mean, most people, when they think of dig, dig Deep, they think of our access work. That's like the sort of beating heart of our work, right? Like the Navajo Water Project, the Appalachia Water Project, the Colonias Water Project, teams of people who go out every day and hook up homes either on or off-grid to systems that get them hot and cold running water and flush toilets. And, you know, tens of families every week are turning on the water for the first time because of our work. And, and it's really exciting. And that's where it's sort of the emotion and the passion are. But you're right that, that that's not enough by itself. I think the work we did in 2019 to publish this first report on water access in the U.S. called Closing the Water Access Gap in the United States. I, I co-authored that with the woman who is now assistant administrator of the EPA for water, you know, the head of water, basically, you know, the de facto head of water for the U.S. government, Radhika Fox. And it was the first to kind of put a, a, a number out there, these 2.2 million Americans and growing, and the first to help people understand the socio socioeconomic dynamics, like race, the geography of this problem, lay out a roadmap for how to solve it. And more than any of our access projects have, that, that really help crystallize this for folks and help them understand that this isn't just something a few people are struggling with in remote places out of choice. This is a really all-consuming daily reality for so many folks who, who don't have a choice and who would choose to live another way if they could and who have been forgotten in the way our country has developed its infrastructure and who without really continued sustained intention uh, will continue to be forgotten, I think. That's the problem. Mm. Let's look at the solution. Do you think that gap can be closed 
with traditional approaches or does it require innovation, new ways and probably even thing which we haven't invented yet? I think if it could be closed with traditional approaches, it already would have been. The reason the gap exists is because there's something that's not working. And it's not just one thing, you know. I think the biggest culprits are a lack of visibility and data at the government level. You know, we don't have a single indicator of how many people don't have access to water and sanitation that's granular enough for us to be able to knock that number down to zero. I think it's the way that we build and fund water systems. This focus on municipal systems and sort of leaving everyone else to build their own well or build their own septic system when there needs to be kind of a third a third approach, something that can reach smaller communities at scale, something that's a little more flexible, a little more creative. The same thing on the funding side. I think we've been focused so long on funding water access systems that sustain themselves through bill payment. It's really been the way we've looked at this problem since the late 70s. If, if your water and sanitation system can't sustain itself through the rates that your users are paying, it must not be worth building. And we know just from that economic data I told you about earlier that that's just not true. Like mm -hmm. we lose, for every household that doesn't have access to water and sanitation, the US economy is losing almost $16,000 per household per year. In many cases over, over the course of a few years, that compounds to enough losses that it would more than pay for extending services either on or off grid to that home. So it doesn't make economic sense but to keep not, going that way. It's not the same pocket. I mean, if you're, if you're the water utility, you have the cost of bringing that water to the people. If they get less sick and don't go to the hospital, you don't get that, You've that, really, that economy yeah. in your pocket. You've hit the, the problem on its head. The reason that that has continued is because we have a wrong pockets problem, what economists would call yeah. this wrong pockets problem. You know, the, the societal benefits don't accrue to the same folks that would necessarily make the investment to solve the problem. And in the US, in, in most cases, that's either municipalities leveraging federal funds as loans or forgivable grants that they have to prove their eligibility for, or it's private water companies who are economically disincentivized because of this wrong pockets yeah. problem from extending these systems. Or in the case of municipal systems, their hands are tied because they can't access the funds they need to extend it because they can't prove the financial sustainability of those investments and therefore access federal funding. So that wrong pockets problem gets in the way, but that's an even stronger argument for why the federal government needs to take a more aggressive approach out front, make more grants versus loans, make more money available, especially when you look at this from a social justice standpoint. I mean, as someone you know who's really deeply invested in this idea that we all have a human right to water and sanitation, that having access to those things is necessary for us to experience dignity as a human person. You know, these communities that are without access right now, they've been without access, most of them since the beginning. They were never given the same investment as predominantly white communities were, sometimes right next to them. And if we're going to right that historical wrong and give these communities the opportunity to develop economically and sustain themselves and, and give these folks a chance at the life that Americans all believe together that we deserve, we have to step up from the federal government standpoint and make those investments that weren't made originally. And that is going to involve a serious commitment to more and more flexible dollars. I don't want to put you in a difficult position. <laughs> Bear in mind, You're the only one. I'm French, <laughs> so I can afford that question, but you, you'll tell me if it's over the top. Do you expect the solution to come from the federal government or is the solution maybe somewhere else? Maybe philanthropy, mm. maybe 
blended capital? A great question. Definitely not over the top. I will say also, now knowing your French, this is not just a problem in the US. It's in other high-income countries as well. Most people know about it most in Australia or in Canada, but it exists in France and in Germany, especially with displaced populations that are crossing the Mediterranean and Absolutely. coming into urban yeah. centers and living in you know diasporic communities or places without access to infrastructure. I got a call from a, a French water utility a few years ago, I guess maybe a year ago now, who is looking at how they can solve this problem in French urban centers, which is you know surprising. I think most people think that these developed economies don't have this problem, but we do. Okay, I, I digress. <laughs> to your question, no. I don't think the impetus for solving this problem is going to come from the federal government. I don't think the best ideas are going to come from the federal government. That's not what government does well. But I do think that the level of investment required does mean that the federal government needs to take the lead. Okay. If we look at how this has worked in other countries, you know, we have cut more than in half in the last you know, few decades, the number of people in the developing world who don't have access to running water or sanitation. We were working toward the Millennium Development Goals for a long time. Now we have these Sustainable Development Goals trying to get that number to zero. And we've been incredibly successful internationally with with a bunch of caveats. Um, it's interesting. You're you're on the optimistic side of the story. I am. I am. I I think like if you if you look at what this the wash sector has done in the last 60 years in terms of just like the sheer volume of people we've served with improved access to water and sanitation, it's kind of miraculous. It is. It's just that if you if you look at the, I mean, there's the half full and the half empty glass. If you mm. look at the half empty glass, there's still about the same amount of people who don't have access to water just because the population because grew the population as well. Population growth. So, yeah. Well, half empty people don't start nonprofits. They don't. <laughs> <laughs> so, Fair point. so I'm a half full person. But I'll say that like any success, I'll, I'll caveat it by saying any success we've had there, whether whether you think of it as being tremendous or not, is really only because there is a well-organized sector made up of implementing organizations, their community partners, academia, you know, nonprofits, philanthropy, in partnership with government that's been driving this forward in community. They've been sharing data. They've been setting ambitious goals like, hey, this cluster of 30 organizations in partnership with our government officials in these ministries of health or, you know, in these ministries of the interior, we're going to cut in half the amount of people defecating in the open in the Middle East and North Africa in the next 20 years, you know, to give an example. Mm -hmm. We don't have a civil sector focused on WASH in the US. We never have. We are currently the only <laughs> WASH organization focused on solving this problem in the US. We won't be for long. I mean, other organizations, including many international WASH organizations, are, are coming back to the US and starting to make investments here, planning strategies, hiring staff, and that's really exciting. Until the 150 or 200 organizations that all touch water and sanitation access in the US already can come together as a sector and start holding government accountable and start highlighting ideas like, you know, Colin Goddard's company, Source, which is focused on atmospheric water generation in places where maybe traditional groundwater isn't an option, or focusing on remediation of difficult contamination issues like arsenic or uranium or PFAS, or focused on, you know, innovative financing partnerships or, or public-private endeavors. We need a wash sector that is, you know, setting targets, sharing data, holding government accountable in partnership with those agencies. And until we have that in the U.S., I don't think we'll close that gap because government simply won't be incentivized enough. There needs to be a broker who is representing the interests of these marginalized communities, bringing them into these conversations, centering their needs and making sure they get represented. Because, you know, we're here speaking at this Rethinking Water Conference at Columbia. 
I bet if you were to poll the 400 people here today, you would be lucky to find five that are focused on the water wastewater access gap. Everyone else here is focused on places that for better or worse already have access to water and sanitation and face issues like contamination, affordability, service degradation, climate change, all really big issues. And we have to tackle them all to keep the gap from growing. But there are so few that are focused on the gap exclusively and that are working in a coordinated way to hold government accountable. Until that happens, I don't think the federal government will be able to take the lead we need it to. Do you think at some point it's, uh, it can be a problem that we have so many different agendas? I had a conversation on that microphone with Mina Guli. Mm-hmm. And she, she has a very simple theory, which is that somehow we now get the message across when it comes to climate change because we have one clear message, which is zero carbon. Zero carbon, everybody has heard it. Mm-hmm. You can pretend nowadays to never have heard the motto zero carbon. When it comes to water, we don't have that single metric for success. So she was proposing, quite interestingly, because it's the same wording you, you were using, she was proposing closing the gap. And I do get it's going to be hard because the water sector is very diverse and very scattered. So you won't have that one single flag for which everybody will rally and and follow and and, and walk and go the extra mile. But still, is there a possibility to streamline that message so that everybody out there gets to understand that that problem is everybody's problem as a society? I was just with a colleague uh, several days ago at RCAP, which is an incredible organization, and he was sort of bemoaning that in our sector, you know, we're not like the airlines where you have you know, all of these companies who are in competition with each other, but still come together to do incredible policy work, right? I mean, they're completely aligned. Well, maybe not completely, but very aligned when it comes to what they want from, you know, state and federal representatives. And so they get a lot done. And he was sort of bemoaning that we haven't been able to do this as a sector. And the reality is that similar to climate change, the water sector is is not just one thing. Like it is so much more complicated than running an airline. You know, my apologies, my apologies to the airline CEOs <laughs> listening to this podcast. I'm sure they won't agree with me, but it really is. I mean, it's it's availability, it's contamination, it's affordability, it's infrastructure, it's built infrastructure, it's natural infrastructure, it is climate, and it is agriculture, and it is industry, and it is human use, and it's all of these things at one. And so I think the US Water Alliance does a good job. Um, you know, in their network of talking about this as one water, which has really been a game changer for our sector over the past few years, that idea of like, no, stop just meeting with the four or five organizations that work in your part of the sector. Like we are one water and we need to be working together as a group. But I don't think we have found that single metric of success yet. And I am obviously tremendously biased. Who isn't? But I do think you're right. I think that closing the gap, but more importantly, keeping it closed has to be that metric of success. If we can close the gap, we will have served those 2.2 million. If we can keep it closed, it means we will have solved for the ways climate change is impacting our water and sanitation systems. It means we will have dealt with the affordability problem that means that almost a third of American families may not be able to afford their water bills in coming decades. It means we will have tackled difficult contaminants that are reducing the quality of what we're delivering through our water systems or making them unusable in some cases. So I think if if we focus on closing that gap and keeping it closed is the part I I might add to that goal, we'll be doing a great job. I mean, what better indicator do we have than that? I would have so many additional questions and I have to be cautious every time at some point. So let me just close with that one. You're a health full glass type of person. So what's the horizon at which you can close dig deep and say job done? 
we achieved it. Oh man, we have solved much more complicated problems than this as a country. I think the beauty of my job is that this is completely solvable. And I think with the right investment and focus, we could solve it in the next couple decades. You know, give it 20 or 30 years maybe. And, and believe me, that seems like long enough if you live every day without access to water and sanitation. I mean, if you wake up every morning and your first thought isn't, what am I doing at work? Or like, how am I going to drive my kid from school to gymnastics to soccer? Or your thought is, how am I going to get enough clean water today for my family to survive? And maybe, maybe I'm lucky enough to be able to drive to a store and buy it in a bottle. Maybe I have to drive to a truck stop or to school to take a shower or to a family's house. Maybe I have to walk outside of my house with a bucket and pull it out of a livestock pond or a stream and boil it. If you live like that every day, 20 or 30 years is too long. But I do think that we can solve this problem in our lifetimes. And that, that does give me a tremendous amount of, of optimism because we have solved more complicated problems than this. It's going to take a coordinated response. It's going to take federal investment. Understanding that when we do make that investment, it's going to achieve an incredible economic return for us. But I think that if there was a silver lining to the last few years of COVID, it was a really increased focus on the way some of these problems impact people in their daily lives. Um, certainly a renewed focus like we've never seen at Dig Deep on this issue. So I don't, yeah, I am optimistic. I, I fully intend with the help of a lot of other people to solve this problem in my lifetime. If you're listening to this and that interests you, <laughs> join. Are you actively looking for people to join you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in this economy, we're hiring at Dig Deep. We're actively looking for partners in that wash space who want to help you know, convene other partners and, and hold government accountable and, and build more of a networked approach to solving this problem. We're looking for philanthropic and private industry partners who want to, you know, invest in solutions on the ground in some of these communities, both, you know, simple technologies like trucking systems, experiment with new technologies like atmospheric water generation. This work will only be possible through partnership. To round off these interviews, I have just uh, two short rapid fire questions. Mm. The first is, what is the most exciting project you've been involved in and why? This is a really easy thing for me. We just um, signed up our first students uh, for a joint program that we launched with IAPMO, the International Association of Plumbing and Mechanical Officials, and the UA, which is the largest plumbing and pipe fitting union in the US, at Navajo Technical University. On the Navajo Nation, which is the size of West Virginia, there are only a couple licensed plumbers. And so there's all of these federal funds coming in to reservation lands to build water systems. There's all this private work being done by Dig Deep and others, but we have no one to draw on. You know, if you want to hire a plumber on Navajo, if you're just a simple house owner that has to get a pipe fixed, you often have to find someone, if you can convince them, to drive from off-reservation to serve you. And all of that money you're investing in solving that problem is leaving your community. And so we, we have this new plumbing certificate program with its own classroom and wet lab, and it's really cool. And it will welcome the first class of Navajo Nation plumbers and pipe fitters who with that certificate can do that work on the nation and who with that certificate are, are sort of guaranteed entry into apprenticeship programs through the UA that can get them a full license to practice plumbing on or off Navajo. And I think programs like that, that that meet these longer needs, you know, not just the immediate need of, of water infrastructure, but the longer and sometimes harder to solve need of, of manpower and brain power. They're really fun and really interesting to me because, I mean, you, you see the capacity for them to to build economic wealth in some of these areas to give people generational businesses that they can build their families and communities around. I think, yeah, that has been a lot of fun to watch. Last question. What mm. is the trend to watch out for in the water sector? 
I think the trend currently to watch out for in the water sector is federal investment. There has never been more money available, and it's certainly not nearly enough to meet the need, not only of of the folks that don't have access to infrastructure now, but of, you know, the existing need to maintain the infrastructure we do have. It's not enough, but it is the biggest investment in history. And I think we would all do well to keep our eyes on the way that investment is getting pushed out the door, whether it's making it to the folks that need it the most. You know, are they getting the assistance they need to apply for it? Is it being, you know, provided to them the way it was promised, more as grants and as loans? You know, how I think the proof will be in the pudding. There, there is an incredible commitment to solving this and other water-related problems, but it really will depend on the strength of some of these programs to reach the people that need them the most, and we all need to keep our eye on that prize. Well, George, I had high expectations, and you delivered higher than expected, so <laughs> thanks a lot. My mother would incredible. be proud. And I hope to have the chance in the future to, to dive a bit deeper with you. I mean, dig deep. Dig deeper, so yeah. Sounds I mean, about right. Come on. <laughs> and I wish you a good rest of the conference. Thank you, Antoine. But this is it for another episode of the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'd like to hand out a special thanks to Science Water for enabling it. And if you enjoyed it, make sure to give it a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. I don't know if I deserve five stars, but my guest surely does. Do it now, tell it to your friends, and I'll be back very soon with the next interview.